Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Oh Lord, once again I come before you with a full knowledge of my own failings. Once again, I stand before your people, awed by the task that you have given me. And so, Lord, I have nothing but to claim the promises that you have made, that you would be with me, that you would anoint me and speak through me. God, I ask that you would touch my lips with fire the way you did Isaiah. That I could speak your truth to your people. Lord, open my lips so that my soul can magnify the Lord. God, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we journey through the Psalms, through this Lenten season, it was an exciting moment when I realized that we were going to come to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 has a very special place in my heart. It is, in fact, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, not necessarily because it's about happy things, it's not really about happy things, but because of the outsized place that Psalm 51 has played in my own life. You see, from a very young age, I grew up in the church. Now, it wasn't the Baptist church. It was the Episcopal church. So things were a little different. But I can remember my earliest memories are being in church with my parents. And I felt the presence of God in that place. And I was a good Episcopal boy. I was an altar boy, did my first communion. There were even times when they let me sling the incense fire bucket, which is a big ask for a 14-year-old boy, you know? I imbibed much of what it meant to be Episcopalian and to be liturgical. But one of the things that benefited me was I had a, a priest who was, had a little bit of the Baptist in him. Now, if any of you guys have ever been to an Episcopal church or a Lutheran church or a Catholic church, they don't really do altar calls there. But our guy did. And I can remember one time when I was a, a very young man, I was, a, I was a, uh, probably in ninth or 10th grade, he did an altar call. And I remember the spirit of the Lord swelling inside of me. And I walked down to the front and said, yes, I want to have a relationship with God. Didn't know what that meant. The Episcopal Church doesn't, a good, doesn't do a good job of explaining what the gospel is. But I know that I wanted to have a relationship with God. And that's when my problems began. Because see, it's not enough to want to have a relationship with God 
especially as a teenager, especially as a boy. Because there's a little thing called hormones and girls. And both of those things conspired to trip me up day in and day out. See, growing up in the church, I knew what the law was. I knew that it wasn't enough just not for me to, have a, to commit adultery. I couldn't look at a woman lustfully. For a 14-year-old boy, that's a tall order. And so every week I would go into church, I would take communion, I would feel close to God. And every Monday I would go to high school and feel farther and farther away from him. And, I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't bring both of these things together. I, I read those amazing words written by Paul, O wretched man that I am, that which I long to do I cannot do, and that which I hate doing, that is what I do. Well, who will save me from this body of sin? And it resonated in me. And as this battle with sin grew in my own heart, I, went to, I did what you're supposed to do. I went to my priest and I confessed. And he gave me Psalm 51 as penance. And I was to read Psalm 51 until it became a prayer of my heart. Now, we can have lots of conversations about penance and what that looks like and whether that's true or not. That's not what we're doing today. What I want you to understand is that Psalm 51's words gave speech to the feelings that I had. As I cried out to God, have mercy on me, O oh God. Have mercy on me. This is one of the greatest penitential psalms that we have in the entire Psalter. It's, a, it's an amazing cry for forgiveness on the part of David. It is so incredibly moving. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the sum of this psalm may be wept over, it may be absorbed into the soul and, and exhaled again as devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, can do either other than blush in defeat? See, the truths spoken of in Psalm 51 are so deep and so, so emotional that explaining it we run the danger of doing violence to it. So I would ask your pardon this morning as I, as I try to move through this, as I try to give words to the poetry. To understand this, we've got to remember that this is in fact poetry. And so the author is not going to make a linear point. He groups phrases and images. He's painting a picture in emotion. So I want us to take a little bit of time and try to understand the emotions that David is trying to communicate. Now, one of the things that is helpful about Psalm 51 is it has a really good superscription. That's the part at the top that tells us what's actually going on here. And we read in the very beginning of this psalm that it was written by, by David in response to his sin with Bathsheba. Okay? For those of you who don't know, 
what this is talking about occurs in the book of 1 Samuel, sorry, 2 Samuel. David, the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, has grown powerful and comfortable in his palace. And in the springtime, when kings are supposed to go to war, David didn't. He's sitting at home, idle. And as so often happens, idle hands are the devil's playground. As he sits in his house, he looks out over the other houses in the city of Jerusalem, and he sees a woman bathing, a woman named Bathsheba. And immediately, he desires her. So he calls her into the palace and he sleeps with her. Now we're not sure exactly what happened. We're not sure if he actually raped her or not. But it definitely was a power imbalance. It's definitely an inappropriate relationship. Not to mention the fact that her husband was one of David's trusted subordinates. So this would be like the CEO of a company coercing one of his vice president's wives to have sex with him, okay? It's very inappropriate, highly inappropriate. Inappropriate isn't even the right word. It is sin, dark, broken sin. And like all sin, corruption and death flows from it because Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Well, now David has a problem. He is about to publicly be shamed, and have public consequences for the things that he's done. So he tries different things to try to get out of it. He invites uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back and thinking like, oh, okay, you know, you've been out at war for a long time. I'm going to bring you back and then, you know, things will happen and then I can have plausible deniability. But Uriah doesn't go home. His men are in the field. How can I go and have relations with my wife when my men are in the field. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sleep on the, on the doorpost. When David finds out that this happens, he does the only thing that he, think he thinks he can. He writes a letter to the commander of the army and says, put Uriah in the front rank where the battle is the hottest and then withdraw your troops from around him so that he dies. So not only has David committed adultery, not only has he exercised very poor judgment with Bathsheba, probably harassing her, maybe raping her, he has also committed murder. David is an adulterer, a rapist, and a murderer. This is where we find David in the passage this morning. The prophet Nathan comes to him, confronts him in his sin, and explains to him the consequences that are going to flow from it. And David begins to cry out. How does he cry out? Well, his psalm begins, as so many of David's psalms do, with a cry for mercy from God. As David has been confronted with his sin and what the consequences of his sin are, as he sees God turning his face away, what does he say? He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. One of the poetic devices that David makes use of in this psalm is this repeated use of language. 
So what's the first thing that we see repeated over and over and over again? Well, we have a bunch of words that are used. Hata, which is a term that means sin. He uses the word pesa, which means transgression. Awan, which means iniquity. And ra, which means evil. All of these terms are repeated over and over and over again. He's basically saying, I have sinned in every way that you can say the word sin. And why is that important? Because the language that we use matters. I've noticed a disturbing trend in the way that we speak about sin over the last 10 years. Notice that whenever we talk about sin, we use a word, mistake. Oh, well, you know, we all make mistakes. Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I made a mistake again. Oh, I messed up again. We take away the brutal consequences of our actions when we call a sin a mistake. Knocking the milk over is a mistake. Okay? Forgetting to change the oil in your car is a mistake. Knowingly violating God's law is not a mistake. It's a sin. It is rebellion against God. It is evil and wickedness. It is brokenness and it destroys everything it touches. And so David doesn't sit there and use this waffling legal, this waffling weasel language when he describes what he does. He goes, oh God, I messed up again. Oh God, you know, my bad God. No, no, he's like, I sinned. I did what is evil. I know that what I did was wrong. And then he uses another set of language that's equally interesting. He uses the words wash and blot out and cleanse and purge over and over and over again, right? And so the image that he's creating is, I have sinned and it has stained me. This isn't something that just goes away. It's not something that God can overlook. It's not something that God is just gonna forget about. He has fundamentally destroyed Something about himself. He's dirty. And any of us who have been involved in sin know what that looks like. We know how that feels. Whether you wake up the next morning after a particularly bad evening out, the way you feel, or when you do something particularly shady in your business practices, Maybe just being ugly and mean to your kids or the people around you. You know what it means to feel dirty. David did. And so he's crying out to God and declaring that he is dirty and he needs to be cleaned. He feels this way because the Old Testament law did its job. So often we can become confused about the Old Testament law. We can read through the books of Leviticus and Numbers and wonder why on earth would God make all of these crazy laws? We'll say that. We'll say, these are crazy laws. But they're not crazy laws. 
They are laws that exist for a specific reason, and that reason is to paint a picture of a God who is holy, who can have nothing to do with that which is unholy. And so we create this incredibly large, incredibly complex system of rituals that a person has to go through in order to go into the presence of God to hammer home to stupid people, which is us, the fact that sin corrupts. David knows what this means. He understands that he has been corrupted by his sin. And so he's crying out to God and declaring that he is dirty and in need of being cleaned. David has sinned. And he feels acutely the deep stain that sin brings. He feels shame and he feels guilt. And that's not a bad thing. We come to this place in our culture today when guilt and shame are both universally described in negative terms. Oh, got to get over your guilt. We'll be told that shame culture is bad culture. You need to be good with who you are, right? Be true to yourself. Don't apologize. That's a bunch of garbage. Guess what? If you're a bad person that does bad things, you should feel ashamed of that. We want people to feel shame. We want people to feel guilt. Guess what? If you're a concentration camp guard, you should feel bad about what you're doing. And if you don't, there's something broken inside of you. Shame is a way that our mind tells us when we're doing something wrong. Now, there's bad things, right? The devil can take anything and twist it. If you've been abused or misused and the shame that you feel because of that, that's misplaced shame. If you're the victim of violence, you shouldn't feel guilt about that. But if you've done violence, you should feel guilty about that. See how that works? The shame that David is feeling right now is legitimate, godly shame. He's been given every opportunity. God has blessed him in a million ways, and yet he has spit in the face of God. Nathan says it this way. He says, you have disdained God. You have shown him contempt, because that's what sin is, guys. When we know the right thing and we do the wrong thing, we are showing contempt to God. And when we do that, our conscience which was put in us by God, the scrap of the divine that is still in us, the image of the invisible God that still lurks around inside of us, cries out and says, whoa, man, that's wrong. Why are you doing that? This is the kind of shame we see in the parable of the prodigal son. As he sits there among the pig excrement, and he thinks to himself, oh man, what did I do? It's the kind of shame and guilt that drives the prodigal son back into relationship with his family. It's the kind of 
shame and guilt that hits us when we're at rock bottom. And it's the kind of shame and guilt that can save your life if you let it turn to wisdom. So David stands in the midst of his shame and his guilt, and he admits it to God. In his shame and guilt, he cries out for cleansing, but this cry is a very important component to it. It's a cry of confession. He doesn't try to hide or explain away his sin. Instead, he confesses his sin to God. Listen to what he says. For I know my transgressions. He knows what he did. Nobody has to explain it to him. Be like, hey, David, you know, it's super wrong for you to force yourself on a woman and then kill her husband. That's not a cool thing to do, David. Oh, whoa, I totally didn't know that. Uh, My bad, I guess I made a mistake. No, David knows what he did. David knew what he was doing was wrong when he did it. Look what else he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's a little bit confusing sometimes, right? Because it makes it sound like he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. But we need to understand this. This is not David trying to minimize or mitigate his sin. This is David making his sin as bad as it possibly could be. Okay, so when David sinned against Uriah, he wasn't sinning against Uriah, he was sinning against God. When David sinned against Bathsheba, he wasn't sinning against Bathsheba, he was sinning against God. All sin is sin against God. Understand that. See, part of our problem is we think in our minds, we don't say this because we're good Baptists, we think in our mind that some sins are worse than other sins. Right? Come on, let's be real. You really do think that. There's some sins that are terrible, usually the sins that other people commit. Cross-dressing, terrible sin. How dare you be transgendered? You're a terrible, terrible person. That's a sin that is unforgivable. Cheating on your taxes? Well, that's understandable. That's really more of a mistake than a sin outright. I mean, (laughs) government has plenty of money. It doesn't actually need mine. Plus, it's just going to use it for bad things. Getting an abortion, that's a sin. Cussing at a homeless person because they're standing in front of your car, well, that's understandable. That person has it coming, right? See, whether we admit it or not, we have created some sins as deeply important and some sins as just kind of minor violations that we don't have to talk about or think about. But here's the reality. All sin is rebellion against a holy God. All sin is treason against the ultimate form of authority. And so David is declaring that outright. I have sinned against you, God. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Then he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is another one of those phrases that we kind of get crossways on. 
There's a whole theology in the Middle Ages that was based on this verse that said that sex was bad and was the way that we had original sin and that women were worse than men because they were the one that passed down original sin. That's not what this is saying. Sex is not a bad thing. Stealing your friend's wife and raping her, that is bad. Okay? What he is saying here is that the totality of his essence is sinful. Okay? He is, he's not a good person that messed up and did a bad thing. He is a bad person that acted out of the badness within his own heart. He is expressing what the church will later describe as total depravity. You are fundamentally and essentially sinful. But then he goes on to say, Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Right? He's declaring to God, you want us to be honest with ourselves, and so I'm declaring these things to you. We get an image of David who is not holding anything back. He's putting it all out there. There's no place left for him to hide. There's no, there's no fig leaf that he's trying to put over himself. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm totally, totally broken. What we have to understand, guys, is that the path to forgiveness leads through true and honest confession. And so I would, I would just, I would challenge you this morning. Really look at yourself. Really think about who you are. Think about the things you've done. Pray that great psalm, search me, O Lord, and know me. Show me if there is any unclean thing in me. Because that's where the process of reconciliation starts. It was the main part of Jesus' ministry. I want you to think about that. What did Jesus do? His ministry consisted of repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. All of his teaching was there to show the Jewish people that they were not keeping the law. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. If you ever read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, wow, that's crazy. Nobody could keep that. That's the point. The law exists to show us that we're sinners. The law teaches us that aside from God, I cannot make God happy. That's the lesson that I learned as a teenage boy is that I don't have goodness within me. There is no goodness in me when I stand on my girlfriend's doorstep. Knock on the door, I become a totally different guy when I go inside. A wretched man that I am. That was the reality of the lesson that I had to learn. The lesson that I had to cry out to God. The lesson that David learned. And so what does he do? He, what do you do when you come to grips with your own brokenness? What do you do when you wake up and realize that you're not who you thought you were? When you realize that you're a sinner? I'll tell you what David did. He cried out for forgiveness. David is filthy from his sin and he has openly and honestly admitted this and now the psalmist comes to the beating heart of the poem. 
He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. James Boyce called verse 7 the most important and least understood words in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. What on earth does that mean? Well, hyssop was a small plant shaped in this way where it could be a brush. And what the priests would do is they would take the hyssop, this brush, they would dip it in the blood and they would sprinkle it over the sacrifice and the offering. In the Passover, it says take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's on the basin and brush it on the lintel and the doorposts with some of the blood. In Leviticus and Numbers, hyssop we use to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the people and cleansing ceremonies. That's what he's saying. He's not saying use the hyssop to scrub me. He's saying use the hyssop with the blood of the sacrifice and cleanse me. Wash away my sin with the blood of the sacrifice. He knows that the penalty for his sin is death. There's no way you come back from rape, murder, and apostasy like this. You don't come back from that. There's no way in the Jewish law for a man to not be killed when he commits adultery, rape, and murder. That doesn't happen. There's no way back. The only thing that can happen to him is for his sin to be removed from him and the penalty for the sin to be paid for by something else, ultimately by someone else besides him. Because God cannot overlook sin. Understand that. Sometimes we, we get the idea that, well, God doesn't really care about my sin. He, just, he doesn't care about that. No, no, God still cares about sin. God absolutely cares about sin. He is unchanging and he is just. And a just God will not let any sin go unpunished. God can't simply overlook sin as if it didn't happen. And knowing God's justice, David uses the language of sacrifice. But he needs something more than ceremony. Right? The ceremonies aren't enough. He needs what will become the promise of the new covenant. Right now, understand this. David is writing way before the prophets wrote. He's writing way before Isaiah. And yet he uses the language that we find in Ezekiel and Isaiah when he talks about what's going to happen. Listen, this is what Ezekiel says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what David's asking for. Like 500 years before Ezekiel thinks to write it. 
Way before Isaiah says, though your sins are scarlet, I will make you whiter than snow. David is saying, take my sins, make me whiter than snow. He's asking to be restored to the joy of God's salvation and for God to create a clean heart in him. And all of this is a tall order because the Old Testament does not allow for David to be forgiven for what he's done. So what is he doing? He's asking God to put away his sin. And that's what happens. Nathan says that even though he has scorned God, the Lord will put away his sin. Now, how on earth can a righteous judge do that? You don't just pass over rape and murder and lying. Righteous judges don't do that. And yet God declares that he is clean. And Romans chapter 3 helps us understand this. He said, God put Christ forward as appropriation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in the divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's exactly what 2 Samuel 7 happened, or 2 Samuel 12 says happened. He passed over David's sin. And he did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. David is saved because he looks forward to a salvation that he does not even understand. That's what repentance looks like. David knows that there were guilty who would not be forgiven and that were guilty, who by some mysterious work of redemption would not be counted as guilty, but would be forgiven. And he cries out to that with every bit of who he is. Why? Look back to verse one. Why would God do this? Because of God's hesed. We talked about this before. His never ending, never stopping, always and forever love. The kind of love that we translate as grace so look what David is asking for. He's saying, he's, he's asking God to save him by faith through grace. Does that sound familiar at all? It should. It's the way that all of us are saved. David, in his brokenness, anticipated the gospel by a thousand years. Why? Well, in verse 13, he describes it. He said, if you will do this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David understands at its most basic that forgiveness is not about us. It's about God. It's about God's glory. God saves us for his glory. And so when you have been saved, when you have been forgiven, it is your job to sing his praise, to declare what he's done for you. That's just what David does. 
See, David is forgiven, and he writes Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 51 becomes the cry of every broken heart for 3,000 years. But he's not done just there either. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This goes back to what we said earlier. There was no way for him to be made right with God through the sacrificial system. There is a way for him to be right though because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise See, sacrifice is not offered by humanity to appease God. He doesn't care about bulls. Sacrifice is there as a symbol that we can focus on. What God wants is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And he has said this over and over and over again through the entirety of the Old Testament. But you know, O man, what God desires of you, but to... Do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus tells this to the Jews when he says, ask what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And everything in between. The sacrifices don't make us right with God. A broken and contrite spirit does. So why is David forgiven these heinous and disgusting sins that he's committed? Because his spirit is broken, and his heart is contrite. And that broken spirit and that contrite heart are the truest forms of worship that God wants. What does Romans 12:1 say? Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, your souls, and your bodies as a living sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, This is not a precursor to worship. This is worship. When we repent and cry out in our sin to God, we are worshiping him with all that we have and all that we are. We are worshiping him in the truest and most amazing sense. We are reversing the pride and the arrogance of our parents in the fall. Think about that. What was Adam and Eve's sin? The devil came to them. They had one law that they had to follow. Don't eat this. Doesn't matter what it was. Could have been a pomegranate. Could have been an apple. We don't know. It doesn't matter. There was nothing intrinsically magical about it. What was important was the fact that God said, don't eat it. It could have been a Brussels sprout. They still would have eaten it. Why? Because the devil came to them and said, if you eat it, you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. The idea is, if you know the difference between good and evil, you'll be able to choose on your own. Then you'll be like him. Then he won't get to hold his righteousness over you. You can be your own man. You can live your own truth. Live your journey. Set your own narrative. And because people are stupid... They ate the fruit. And brothers and sisters, every time we're given that choice, we do the same thing. We choose our will over God's will. We disdain God. And so when we come to him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, we reverse that choice. 
We say, I can't do this on my own. I'm not good enough to do this on my own. My righteousness is not sufficient to come into your presence, oh God. Cleanse me so that I can be with you in your presence. And every time we do it, you know what happens? God forgives us. Because his love is never stopping, never ending, always and forever love. That is his hesed, his covenant love, his misericordia, his grace. All of those things mean that when David comes to him in the midst of the worst sins that he could commit and cries out to him for mercy, God forgives him. David wants restoration as an act of worship. And David has confessed his sins and placed his trust in the mercy and the loving kindness of God. And this is the path for forgiveness for him. And it's the path of forgiveness for all men and women over the millennia of existence with God. The path to forgiveness leads through true and honest confession. And I need you to know that this morning, guys. Because every one of us is harboring deep sins in our soul. All of us have things that we ultimately don't believe that God will forgive. If you've lived any amount of time as a Christian, you know that these things stack up and they fester in the darkness. But I need you to know this morning that because of his steadfast love and his abundant mercy, God will forgive even the most heinous sins if you ask with a contrite heart. All of that baggage, all of the garbage that you carry with you can be forgiven. But you have to confess it. Now, I want to be clear here. Because when we start talking about confession and when we start talking about sin, immediately we begin to ask the question, well, does this mean that if I don't confess my sins that I lose my salvation? No. You cannot lose your salvation. But you can have a terrible relationship with God. You can be saved and have a horrible relationship with God because you don't believe the things that he said about you. Because you don't believe that he has the power to forgive that one thing that you've done. Oh, he can forgive all the rest of mankind's sins, but I am a special flower, a unique and shiny diamond that can do things that are so bad that the infinite God of the universe can't possibly save them. Look how horribly special I am. No, God can forgive any sin that you've committed. He will forgive any sin that you've committed. You can have your relationship with him repaired if you will simply cry out in honest, contrite confession to him. There is a caveat with this. I struggled with this verse throughout high school. 10th grade became 11th grade, 11th grade became 12th grade, and I wrestled with the same sins in the same way and could not escape. I could not escape the fact that I was dirty before God. 
It drove me crazy. Because no amount of confession and penance, and I tried lots of penance. At one point, I even self-flagellated, made myself like a whip out of some cords. I did that like once or twice. I was like, yeah, this is not for me. Looks cool in the movies, but it really, really hurts. And even that didn't fix it. I could not atone for my own sins. It wasn't until some Baptist found me in college and explained to me what grace and salvation were that this made any sense at all. I was sitting in a Bible study in freshman orientation week. Somebody explained what grace was and how salvation was a free gift. And then he, I'll never forget, he asked this question, do you want this? Do you want to be forgiven? And I was like, are you crazy? Yes, I want to be forgiven. That's all I want is to be forgiven. I cried out to God, and I accepted the forgiveness that he had for me. And my relationship with God fundamentally changed. See, God can forgive anything that we've done except the sin of unbelief. And so if you come here today bearing the weight of a thousand sins on your soul, I would encourage you. Have you made a profession of faith in Christ? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you said, yes, I believe and I accept you as my Lord and my Savior? If you have never done this, it is the only path for you to be redeemed. But I want you to understand this. If you do this, you can be redeemed from anything. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is a time when our ragtag hymn team is going to come up here and we're going to sing an invitation song. I would encourage you, I beg you actually, if you've never made a profession of faith in Christ, walk down this aisle. We have two deacons that are going to be here that will pray with you and show you how you can have freedom, how you can be forgiven for the things that you have done, how that cry that David cried, Wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. How that can be yours. Y'all pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with the men and women in this room today. If there's anyone who does not know you here, anyone who has not accepted you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I ask that you would draw them into a relationship with you, that they would know that you are God and Savior, that they would turn to you, that they would know that all of their sins can be forgiven, all of the striving, all the struggle can be over. All they have to do is reach out and accept what you've already done. So Lord, I cry out today for all of us, wash us with hyssop and we will be clean Cleanse us, and we will be whiter than snow. 
Let the bones that you have broken rejoice and accept our confession as a true act of sacrifice. God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.